you're listening to The Maniculum, pointing the finger at the Middle Ages. We bring you the choicest medieval nonsense, discuss and evaluate it, then pillage it for our own geeky purposes. Thanksgiving, everyone. Yes. Uh, normally, I refuse to observe Thanksgiving because something about commemorating a episode of genocidal colonialism by overconsuming resources just seems wrong. That's fair. I still traditionally celebrate Thanksgiving. I, I suppose I do so in a more, in a sense of community and camaraderie of the natives and the the locals, the more traditional sense of it, but. We always like to acknowledge where our foundations are, and that's a that is a fair criticism. But anyway, when Zoe suggested that we do a Thanksgiving episode, I had a thought, and my thought was we should read about the first time Europeans landed in North America and actually told anyone about it. Yeah, and hint, hint, it was not the Mayflower, which you probably already have gathered at this point, but. Especially since the Mayflower was well after Christopher Columbus, who everyone knows about also. Yes, true. But over 400 years before Christopher Columbus... Before both of those. There was an abortive attempt to colonize North America by the Norse. Yeah. But apparently no one outside uh, the northwestern corner of Europe really got the message. And so people forgot there was a continent over there. I like that. They just lost a continent. There are some surviving uh, mentions of it in texts other than these two sagas. Like, I think there are a couple Irish texts that mention it, but they seem to have gotten a bit confused about what it is they're talking about. Mm -hmm. Fun fact, actually, the population of Iceland genetically has a lot of North American indigenous blood in it because of these expeditions. So some of it actually did go back and forth and there was some cultural transmission there. Yes, which is not actually acknowledged in the sagas at all because they just say, okay, we tried to settle in this place and it didn't work out. But there's a lot of archaeological and genetic evidence suggesting that they continued going back to what they called Vinland and what we today would call Canada. Mm -hmm. uh, mostly for timber, because Iceland and Greenland were both kind of short on timber. Sure. And Labrador had lots of timber. Yep. Okay. Now, preliminary question before you jump into this. Were you ever told in school that Christopher Columbus was not the first European to go over to, quote-unquote, the New World. Yes. Okay, so that was still taught. I don't know if it's still taught, because I was taught about, you know, these early Viking explorers, but it was like a footnote, which is basically how all of American history is, like, addresses anything before Christopher Columbus is a footnote, which is a tragedy. When I was in third grade, I dressed up as Leaf the Lucky for a school presentation. That's amazing! And when I was in ninth or tenth grade, I forget which, I got in an argument with my world history teacher about whether or not Vikings had reached the New World before Columbus, because he was convinced they hadn't. Oh, that's sad. Boo. Oh, come on, man. Apparently, uh, this stuck in his mind, because when he had my little sister in his class three years later, he brought it up to her. Oh, no. <laughs> I mean, positively, I think he liked that uh, I was willing to challenge him, but... Okay. Uh, he... All right. We'll give him props for that. <laughs> yeah. 
All right. But anyway, oh, and another thing that I was taught in my schools because I went to a pretty good public school district was that saying Columbus discovered the New World is bullshit because there were people already living there regardless of Vikings. Yep. Yep. Very true. We did not talk about the genocide. Yeah. Yeah. We we did, but it's it's one of those touchy subjects you have to be very careful about. You have to be very respectful in terms of how you approach it. I don't know about your public schools, but every public school system I've been involved with has a is a is a little beholden to propaganda. That's fair. See, I I attended a variety of schools in my youth, and I only spent one year in the public school system. You forget that I was homeschooled. I do forget that you were homeschooled. <laughs> I was one of those kids. Because of course there aren't schools in Alaska. It's all just snow. And it polar is all bears. just snow. Well, see, that's also one of the better things about public schools in Alaska is a lot of the population is still native indigenous people. So you can't really skip over that because that culture is still very, very much alive. So even though it's different tribes, it's the same like ethnic people group that were here before European settlers came in. So it's more difficult to, <laughs> to uh, skip that over. Man, if Alaska weren't so cold, it would sound like a nice place to live. Oh, I know. <laughs> it's great. Oh, yeah. Uh, beholden to patriotic propaganda, as you would expect from any institution that requires everyone to pray to the national flag every morning, which I assume you got to avoid. I did get to avoid. Yeah, it was, it was very strange to me that there was no uniform, but we had to say the Pledge of Allegiance every morning. Because I was used to wearing a uniform and being able to speak however I wanted as long as it was respectfully. We didn't have to do the whole pledging thing. <laughs> it's real weird. It's real weird. It's real weird that we do that. Anyway, before we get I mean, on too much of a tangent. That's fair. That's fair. I think it, it makes sense traditionally, but we need to be aware of what that tradition is. Yes. I'm all for patriotism and I'm all for respecting the flag and respecting our country. But that does not mean that we do not criticize and we do not comment upon our nation's history. That would be the difference between patriotism and nationalism. Yes. The latter of which is what most people who call themselves patriots are actually beholden to. So with that lovely disclaimer about Thanksgiving. <laughs> yes, let's pull my crazy leftist politics out of everything and go into the saga of Eric the Red. All right, so this is one of two uh, sagas that both cover basically the same events, which is Eric the Red's family trying and failing to establish a settlement in Canada, probably in Newfoundland, because that's where they've actually found Viking remains. That makes sense. So, okay, and correct me if I'm wrong, because my brain might be con conflating these two people. There was Leif Erikson, and then was his son Eric the Red, or were they, am I mixing that up? As the name Leif Erikson might imply, his father is Eric the Red. Okay, gotcha. <laughs> that makes a lot more sense. My like third grade brain was coming back there. I was like, wait, hold on a minute. Yes. Right. The other one is called The Saga of the Greenlanders. I, I picked this one instead for a reason, but now I don't remember what the reason was. So we'll find out as we go. Okay. Oh, and I'm using an 1880 translation by someone called Jay Sefton, which I have modified in bits because of some archaizing and anglicizing that I didn't like. Fair enough. 
I've got to give it to the Victorians in the sense that they did a lot of wonderful translation, but they really, really edited it for content a lot of times. Yeah, we could do better translation now, but translation is out of fashion, which is a shame because yeah, it's what I'd love yeah. to do with my time. Are you being serious or facetious? Serious. That's entirely valid. I've been told by many people who are like currently successful in academia that it's considered out of touch to do new editions and translations instead of scholarship. Are you serious? Yeah. Like that's, a, that's an old-fashioned thing. It's out of vogue. <gasps> I highly disagree with that statement. I mean, why do you think there aren't that many they, new translations? Oh, but how do you think that scholarship gets written? People aren't going back and translating the entire text themselves to write new scholarship. No, they're relying on these translations. There's very few academics who are masters of whatever language that they're working in. No, we need we need more translations. Like, wouldn't it be amazing if we had a translation of the Leech book that wasn't like how like what was that written in like the 18 that was still the 1800s wasn't yeah. it yeah the one i use is is late 1800s just like this one yeah yeah a lot of this stuff Ridiculous. we've got was translated in the victorian era and no one does translation anymore which is why we oh some people do but again it's discouraged uh you have to either be not particularly invested in advancing your academic career or you have to be sufficiently secure in your academic career that you can do what you want. Yeah. Which is why we don't, for instance, have facing page translations of all the sagas, which is what we should have. Which is what we should have. Oh, dear. Well, that is two graduate students who would like to improve the field. So those of you who are in power in academia and listening and want to make a positive change, I heartily encourage encouraging people to make translations yeah, and if anyone out there with money thing. wants to uh give me a fellowship or something to spend some time translating the pharaohese ballads into english hit me up that would be amazing yeah i know it needs to be done oh there's no gosh. english translation that would be amazing there's so much that hasn't been translated that i would love to sit down and translate or so much marginalia like my thing is marginalia i would love to sit down and go through the marginalia of texts and compare what different manuscripts have for different marginalia like if you if you have two manuscripts with geoffrey of monmouth's history of the kings of britain what do these different manuscripts have as marginalia and what does that tell us about the people who were using those manuscripts because it's it's going to be culturally different, and I would love to study those differences. There's so much scholarship that could be done, but is not being done because people who want to do it just don't have the funds or the support from their academic institution. Yeah. And it breaks my heart. It really does break my heart. Well, it's because I think another part of it is we've kind of gone past the era where uh, being in academia meant being kind of a monastic keeper of knowledge. And now you're mostly just an auxiliary mm -hmm. to the bureaucratic uh, arm of the university. Of the university. Yeah. My biggest complaint about universities is bureaucrats. Yeah. Like you need, you need administration, but the money, in my opinion, just gets circled around in a big loop through the administration and does not get to the scholarship that actually needs to be done. Again, pull out some crazy leftist politics. There is a definite <laughs> parasitic element to bureaucracy and administration, both in academia and mm -hmm. elsewhere. And I would suggest... I don't think that... That's not even leftist. That's just obvious. Well, I can't tell the difference anymore. 
but it's gonna get leftist because I'm going to recommend that people read David Graeber, who was an anarchist anthropologist who actually only died like a month ago. Oh, interesting. He published a few books on this subject. Okay. Well, for those interested, I will add that to the reading list because I am unfamiliar with this text. I would recommend The Utopia of Rules, which is his critique of bureaucracy, and Bull Jobs, which is an investigation <laughs> into why there are so many jobs that don't do anyone any good, but that are hardly paid. Oh, I completely agree with that. See, see again, from, from a more libertarian perspective, like that makes total sense to me. Like, yeah, there's so many jobs that don't need to exist that exist mm-hmm. in in terms of bureaucratic nature. Like, just get rid of them. Yeah. We don't need them. We, you don't need a third assistant to the regional manager. It's just there to feed the regional manager's ego. See, this is what we need to do. We need to get well-thinking professors and grad students and, you know, some undergraduates and create a new university. Yes. Just create a whole new system. And we will hire one bureaucrat whose job it is to make sure we don't go broke and nothing else. There we go. That's all we need. Yes. All right. So we... Again, like here, then here's here's us thinking we could save the world, you know, which we are not remotely capable of, of doing by ourselves. No. But, you know, neither is anybody else. I mean, by the time we got this set up, climate change would have destroyed civilization anyway. We've got, what, 10 years, <laughs> so 15? <laughs> We're so hopeful in 2020. Oh, man. Anyway, yeah. let's jump back to... Uh... Yeah, we're, we're 15 minutes in, and I still haven't gotten to the text. <laughs> oh, man. Oh, that's what this that's what this show's all about, folks. All right. Anyway. Yes. Okay. So, so let's actually get to the text. One last preface. All right. This is the first time that we have covered a text that Saga Thing has also covered. Ooh, Okay. Which means that we can compare our court selections to their Thingman selections later, because I have some comments about their Thingman selections. Oh boy! Oh, see, you should have you should have let me know this, and I would have gone back and listened to this episode. Well, I didn't want you to because you're supposed to be surprised by the, the content. Okay, fair enough. Fair enough. Anyway, I did extensive research for this, by which I mean I listened to Saga Things episode. Okay. And by saying that, I have now sabotaged my past self because I'd used that same line on our episode on the Seven Sleepers, which will air after this. Oh, yeah. Hmm. Well, either way. Anyway, getting into it. Olafur, who is called Olafur the White, was styled a warrior king. He was the son of King Ingjald, the son of Helgi, the son of Olafur, the son of Guthred, the son of Halfdan Whiteleg, king of the Uplands. Oh, hang on. To interrupt you, do we know what the uplands are? It's part of Norway. Is this like the far north where like where the Sami people are? I have no idea. Uh-huh. I don't know where in Norway. That'd be interesting to know. Do you think I could Google it? Yeah, sure. Go ahead. I'm just curious because I really enjoy Sami culture and learning about that. So it's an ancient name for the agricultural lands and forest regions to the north of Oslo. So it's not that far north. But anyway, that's the uplands. He led a harrying expedition of Vikings into the west and conquered Dublin in Ireland hey. and Dublin Shire. <laughs> Shout out to uh, to Dublin over here. Yeah, there's actually some really interesting Viking memorabilia and there's actually a lot of remaining Viking culture over here in Ireland. Yeah, a lot of people forget that Dublin was a major Viking city for a long time. Oh, yeah. Well, Dubliners don't forget because we've got these big, beautiful statues of longships everywhere, which I really enjoy. 
Well, I mean ignorant Americans. Yes, fair enough. And Dublinshire, over which he made himself king. He married Oither the Deep-Minded, daughter of Kettle Flatnose, son of Bjorn the Ungartered, a nobleman from Norway. I love these names. I know, I love these names so much. Okay, what's the term for, for these types of titles? I normally just hear them called nicknames. No, but I you could also are... say epithet. Is it just an epithet? I thought there was a different a different term for it. Like a so-and-so, the so-and-so. Yeah, my Google search is not... I'm, I am not using specific enough language for my search query. Anyway, I'll try and come back and find that. We can edit future Zoe in later. Yeah, let's do that. Anyway, he married Oither the Deep-Minded, who comes up in a lot of the sagas. She's like a matriarchal figure. Oh, okay. Was this because she practiced seafood? No. Oh, okay. Because she's not allowed. She's very Christian. Fair enough. So she's deep-minded because she's just really wise. Yeah, she's a a wise woman. She's a major figure in the settlement of Iceland because of this. Makes sense. Anyway, their son was named Thorstein the Red. Olafur fell in battle in Ireland, and then Oither and Thorstein went into the Hebrides. There, Thorstein married Thorid, daughter of Avin the Easterling, sister of Helgi the Lean. And they had many children. In case you haven't caught on, this saga, like most sagas, starts by explaining the context of the person they're going to be talking about, which usually is a couple generations of their exploits of their ancestors. And that's incredibly important to this culture, because knowing where you come from establishes who you are and what your family line is. And I mean, this still goes on. I know this is a prominent uh, cultural thing in Iceland is you you need to know who your family is. Well, in Iceland, I think it's at least partly so you don't end up marrying your cousins. That's also true. There's not that many there's, people. There's some genetic homogen- <laughs> homogeneity there that they need to deal with. Yeah, yeah. It, it's also interesting because that is a um, that's another common theme in Hebrew culture. So if you look at the Old Testament and the traditional uh, Hebrew texts, there's a lot of genealogies there because you need to know who you come from and what heroes are in your lineage because that also establishes who you're supposed to be. That's an interesting cultural difference between sort of what we see in modern Western culture, I'll say, and more traditional forms of naming and self-identification is you are not... Who you are, you are who your family is. Right. For the people who wrote all of these sagas, just starting right in with the the person the saga's about would be like jumping in in the middle of the story. You need the context of who their family is. Mm-hmm. So, Thorstein, who is the son of Olaf and Auder, became a warrior king and formed an alliance with Earl Sigurd the Great, son of Aistine the Rattler. They conquered Caithness, Sutherland, Ross, and Moray, and more than half of Scotland. Over these, Thorstein was king until the Scots plotted against him, and he fell there in battle. So we're just doing the whole world tour. Yes. Oither was in Caithness when she heard of Thorstein's death. Then she caused a merchant ship to be secretly built in the wood, and when she was ready, directed her course out into the Orkneys. There she gave in marriage Thorstein the Red's daughter, Grau, who became mother of Greylather whom Earl Thorfinn Skullcleaver married. Again, these names are so cool. Side note, just because I love this name, is that there is, I can't remember his first name, I think it was like Ingvaldi or something, but he went down in history as the plagiarizer. 
That's pretty good. Like Ingvaldi the plagiarizer. Like how many hundreds of years later and you're still known as being the guy who plagiarized something? Oof, man. I should start doing that to my students. If I catch them plagiarizing, I should just start referring to them as John the plagiarizer. Oh and my all. gosh. I would probably get fired. I was going to say, I don't know if that's like actually allowable in the teaching community, but that no, would I don't be, think it is. I think that, but that would be one way to curb plagiarizing, I think. It's probably not. Back before I did all my comments in Word's um, track changes system, there was a lot of political mutterings in the educational community about whether or not we were allowed to use red pen to mark oh up papers. Oh my gosh, you serious? Because it seems too aggressive. Ugh. To be fair, my mother always used purple just because she thought it was a nicer color than using red. I like using red. That's why I know about this argument because people kept going like, no, you're not supposed to use red. It looks mean. And I'm like, oh my god, it contrasts well with the black. It does contrast well. See, it's stuff like that where like, come on, come on, just use red or just like pick a color that you like. If it's red, let it be red. Well, mine were usually more of a burgundy because I like that color, but that's a whole different thing. Oh, yeah. Anyway. <laughs> Afterwards, Oyther set out to seek Iceland, having 20 free men in her ship. Oyther came to Iceland and passed the first winter in Bjarnarhofen with her brother Bjorn. Afterwards, she occupied all of the Dale country between the Dogradara and the Skramuchlaupsa. By the way, I'm surely butchering these names, but I'm, it's closer than my French, I'll tell you that. <laughs> and dwelt at Fal. She had prayer meetings at Krossholar, where she caused crosses to be erected, for she was baptized and deeply devoted to the faith. Very Christian. No, mm-hmm. no see there or mm-hmm. There came with her to Iceland many men worthy of honor, who had been taken captive in Viking expeditions to the west, and who were called bondmen, which is basically just a nice way of saying she also had slaves. Yeah. Checks out. One of these was called Vifius. He was a man of high family and had been taken captive beyond the western main. He was also called a bondman before Oither set him free. And when Oither granted dwellings to her ship's company, Vifius asked why she gave no abode to him like unto the others. Oither replied that it was of no moment to him, for, she said, he would be esteemed in whatever place he was as one worthy of honor. She gave him Vifius' dollar, and he dwelt there and married. His sons were Thorbjorn and Thorgir, promising men, and they grew up in their father's house. That's an interesting... Yeah. That's some, like, backstory that will come up later. Very cool. And for context, let's just set out what Viking slavery looked like, especially as compared to sort of the American picture of slavery. That's right. Well, for starters, Viking slaves were usually just people they defeated in combat or captured from villages or something. There was not like a, to describe it in the most distressing terms, there was not a breeding program. Mm -hmm. And there was not as much of a racial divide either. It really didn't matter where you came from. Uh, If you were a prisoner of war, you were a prisoner of war. And a lot of times you would have a higher degree of quote unquote freedom uh, to pursue your own household and your own like your your own habits whatever you, what, what you wanted to do uh insofar as you got the work done that needed to get done so you were not a free man you did not have property rights you did not have anything like that whatsoever but it was not chattel slavery it was not the the more traditional 
picture of slavery that you might immediately think of. Not to say that it was in any way better. You might have been treated slightly better, but again, not necessarily, especially if you were stuck, you know, on a longboat rowing. Right. And it should be noted that this is one of those things that uh, white nationalists occasionally bring up when they say like, oh, but the Irish were slaves. A lot of Viking slaves were Irish, but that's not, they weren't slaves because they were Irish. They were slaves because Vikings did a lot of raiding in Ireland, just because that's, it's right there. Yeah. Yeah. I think there were a couple instances of you're Swedish and we don't like the Swedes. So therefore generally the Swedes and the Irish were slaves, but that again was due to we conquered you. Therefore you are now our slaves. Yeah. And I think there was also, there was also a greater degree of quote unquote earning your freedom. You could come up the hierarchy uh, and gain social standing more so than in American racially based slavery. Right. Well, because unlike in America, since it's not so racially based, mm-hmm. uh, once you're not a slave, no one can really tell that you used to be. Which, if I'm recalling correctly, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but generally um, having shorter cut hair or a shaved head would be a sign that you were a slave. And so having longer hair meant that you were, in fact, a free man. So when when monks in Ireland you know, were when they saw monks in Ireland and when Christianity was sort of introduced, had, had the idea of having the circular um, shaved part in the top of your head Concierge. was kind of, yeah, was considered very, very strange because it's like, oh, you're, you're a slave to your God or how does this work? Which is one sort of way of looking at it, I suppose, is you are, you are in devotion to your God. I do not know about that uh, tradition, but I will believe that it's a thing because it sounds plausible to me. Yeah. And I, I might be wrong, but I am about 80% sure that that is correct. I'll have to double check that. So let's let's move away from Viking slavery for a bit because we have some other people to introduce. Woohoo! More genealogies. There was a man called Thorvald, the son of Ausvalder, the son of Ulfur, the son of Ixnathoris. Does that have an X in it? It's spelled O with an okay. umlaut. The umlaut. X-N-A hyphen T-H or Thorn. O with an acute R-I-S. Wow, that is not a traditional name that I've ever seen in the sagas. <laughs> I don't know. I, d- I didn't look up the uh, etymology of the names. The uh, the Uxna bit might be a nickname the translator just skipped over. I don't know. Mm. Anyway, Thorvald's son was named Eric. Father and son moved from Jadar, which is, I assume, in Norway, to Iceland. Would you like to guess... Why Eric and his father had to move to Iceland. Did they kill somebody? You are partially correct. Oh. Because because of some killings. (laughs) Yes. The reason I said you are partially correct is because you said they killed somebody. They killed some buddies. They killed quite a few people. Oh, boy. How many and why, we do not know. Oh, wow. And so I guess this means that we have to introduce what a... Um, wow, I'm totally blanking on the word. A man price, the gold price. What is the... Wear, wear guild. guild. Wear guild. We have to introduce what a wear guild is. So wear guild, wear meaning man, like werewolf, is a man wolf. 
So a wehrgeld is a man price. So if you kill somebody, you have to pay the family back in gold based on that person's worth. And that's established in law codes, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, wow, you're putting a price on somebody's head. It's like, wow, like you're, you're really diminishing value of human life. Well, yes and no. It was an advancement in that the fact that you're actually able to provide justice by paying recompense is a higher form of justice than there was. So it's very different from how we conceptualize justice, but in this culture, it would be fair play. If you killed somebody, you had to pay them for, you had to pay the family for killing that person. So that's what a wear guild is. And if you didn't want to pay the wear guild, you would do what, <laughs> what these guys are doing and you would flee. Yes. Uh, and there is a conversation to be had and maybe a paper to be written. I might have to do this at some point Ooh. about uh, compare and contrast between the Norse and uh, and English and just generally Northern European system of Wehrgeld and the modern leftist idea of restorative justice as opposed Ooh. to punitive justice. That would be very interesting. Yeah, lots As a of comparison, talk about that in, in the circles I hang out with these days. Because, you know, I would imagine. Prison abolition, defund the police, all that. Right, right, right. What would be interesting is also to take the Hebrew idea. I've been doing a lot, as you, as you might be able to tell, I've been doing a lot of reading about Hebrew tradition because I, I sort of jump back and forth between Western European medieval tradition and early Hebrew tradition just because it's another historical world that interests me. Uh, but in. Leviticus, I think, there is the sort of equivalent of a wear guild mm -hmm. system. Yeah. So that, that would be an interesting kind of cross-cultural examination. Fun side note. Oh, boy. The bit in, I don't know if it's in Leviticus or in one of the, uh, somewhere else in the Pentateuch, but one of the rules for compensation is one of the only places in the Bible where whether abortion is murder is mentioned. Oh, yeah. And it's not. Yeah, that's interesting. It specifically says if you kill a pregnant woman, there's an extra fine, but it's not two murders. Future Mac here. Past Mac is misremembering something. Uh, the passage he is thinking about is Exodus 21-22, in which it says that causing a miscarriage is punishable by a fine. The next verse then specifies that if the woman later dies from related injuries, then one must give life for life. Same general point there, but slightly differently presented. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Which is interesting because according to uh, Icelandic and Norse wear guild law code, you had to pay, if you killed a pregnant woman, you would pay the price of a woman and half the price of a man. Interesting. So it's half a murder. Yeah. But it's not the murder of a girl. It's the murder of a man because that baby or that fetus has the potential to be a man. All right. There's no way for them to know. Yeah. Interesting. So, yeah, very interesting. Let's try and uh, suggest that as a compromise between pro-choice and pro-life. Abortion is half murder. Oh boy, it's half murder. I'm not sure how well that would go down in terms of law codes, but you know. I think it would go down poorly with everyone. I think so. That would just be oof. All right. Hey, well, you know, what's the phrase? A good compromise leaves everybody unhappy. There you go. Oh dear. It's like Solomon. Let's cut the baby in half. <laughs> 
also have <laughs> for to listeners. <laughs> for listeners, he just he just pointed his fingers at me. He did the finger guns at me. <laughs> oh man! And as a side note, we are being very facetious here. These are these are not actual um, policy proposals we are laying out. Oh. The other aspect of this is sometimes, even if you did cooperate with the courts, they would pass on you a sentence of outlawry. Yes, yes, that's a big thing. Which would mean instead of, or sometimes in addition to, uh, paying the Ware Guild, you were exiled. And if you stayed in the area, then you were not protected by the law and people could kill you without punishment. Without, yeah, without Hence, penalty. outlaw. You're outside the law. Yes. And sometimes your exile would not be for life. Sometimes it would be for a specific period of time. So in Geesley's saga, I think he's outlawed for 15 years and he gets to something like 14. But throughout the entire saga, he's supposed to be like ridiculously unlucky. Like the murder was technically okay, but he was outlawed anyway. And he gets to year 14 and then he's killed by magic. Uh, but yeah, so sometimes it didn't have to be... You are thinking of Greta's saga again. Is it Greta's saga? He got to year 19 of 20, and he his oh, murder was right. accidental, and he was killed by magic. Yes, thank you for correcting me Geesley was actually a murderer, but he had good that's reason true. for Geesley it. That's was... <laughs> oh, dear. Yeah. Anyway, if you're looking for some light reading that is more interesting, in my opinion, than Game of Thrones, check out the sagas of the Icelanders, because they are full of gruesome murders and outlawry. Yes, fact. Uh, oh, and it, it could also be either outlaw from the country or outlaw just from the area. Because sometimes sure. you've got district outlawry, which basically means, okay, you can't stay here, but you don't have to leave the country. You just have to go to the next yeah. district over. Yeah. Anyway, it is unclear, again, whether Eric and his father are leaving because they have been outlawed or they're just fleeing punishment in general. But they occupied land in Hornstrandir and dwelt at Dranger. There, Thorvald died, and Eric then married Fjordhild, daughter of Jorund, the son of Ulfer, and of Thorbjorg the Shipbreasted. Hang on. The <laughs> Shipbreasted. Yes, there is a reason I paused there. I wanted to make sure that name landed. How does that work? This woman is very well endowed. Oh, like a, like a long ship. Yes. She, uh... There was some discussion of this in Saga Thing because she won their best nickname prize for the saga. I would say so. That's impressive. So this makes me think of like a long ship. It's got the prow down the middle and then both sides kind of come out and then curve around. Oh, I was just thinking it was like they, they just protruded so far that it reminded people of, of the front of a ship. And they're like, oh, my God, something well, coming towards be- us. That would be like the 60s and the, the pointy bras. That's true. But like a long ship, you've got the sink, the big prow down the middle, and then it curves around on the outside. Yeah, there is. Yeah, so there's, there's a bit of a shape. Yeah, okay, yeah. I see it. So, you know, apparently long boats, long boats look like, or I guess titties look like long boats, long boats look like titties. I think uh, long boats came second, so definitely. Long boats look like titties. <laughs> Yes. Now, I can't <laughs> confirm that long boats came second because I'm not a historian, but I'm pretty sure. <laughs> Either way, like they, you know, they've got a great sense of imagination right there. I applaud that. There are a lot of good nicknames in here. So we're about to hit another one. Anyway, Thorbjorn the Shipbreasted, whom afterwards Thorbjorn of the Haukadalar family married. It was he who dwelt at Erikstadr after Erik moved away from the north. 
It is near Vatsworn. Then did Eric's Thralls, which is kind of like slaves. Yeah, I'm not I'm not familiar with the exact social status that would Yeah, there's been. there's a lot of complicated social hierarchy that's among people who work for big farmers. Mm-hmm. There are servants and there are slaves, and I think thralls might be a different thing, and bondsmen might be yet another thing. I, are thralls the ones that are t- they're technically free, but they're tied to the land? I don't think they had that in Iceland, because they just settled it. Mm. Yeah, you but might you be still think- bring your servants over. Well, yeah, but, I mean, serfs on the continent were tied to the land, but you couldn't be tied to the land in somewhere you just moved to. That's true, you'd be tied to whoever you served. Yeah. So maybe it's that. One of the things we learn in Greta Saga is even free people, um, once you enter into a contract with a farmer to be his servant, you have to keep working for him for the whole season. Mm-hmm. There's an episode where uh, a servant is working for Thorbjorn Oxenmite, I think is his, is his name. Yeah. yeah. And Thorbjorn beats him for being lazy and the servant leaves and that's not allowed. Mm-hmm. Even though you're not supposed to beat your servant, you're also not supposed to bail on a contract. That's right. I remember that one. <laughs> yeah. So there's a lot of fine distinctions among freedom and servitude in Iceland that I am not sufficiently educated on to give a discourse here. Yeah. There's a, there's a lot there. The law codes of Iceland are actually so detailed and so complex. They are still taught in law schools today because they are some of the best examples of law codes that we have. In a lot of ways, Iceland was like medieval libertarianism. Yeah. Yeah. Because you could pretty much do what you wanted as long as you were willing to pay compensation for it. Yeah. Spoiler alert. Eventually, a few people ended up owning everything and the society collapsed. (laughs) No offense to libertarians. Fair enough. Yep. But they didn't have a king. They didn't have... Well... Well, yeah. After... The whole oligarchy thing kind of broke the the, yeah. the country. Yeah. They did have a king because they did have I a think, king after that. I think Norway well, just the, bought and, the island back. Yeah, yeah. Norway took the island, and then and with the emergence of Christianity as well. But yeah. yeah. Anyway, we won't jump into that. We are <laughs> <laughs> drifting further and further away from this poor saga. Yeah, we we really need the folks. Anyway, these thralls they caused a landslide on the estate of Valthjof. Something that Saga Thing mentioned. It does not say whether this was intentional, but given Eric's character, it might have been. Fair enough. At Valjolstade. for the Fowl, who, again, according to Saga Thing, might be better translated as for the Beshitten. Oh, gosh. Oh, wow. <laughs> they really did not mess around with these names. No, yeah, no, he's, he's not foul, like, as a bad person. He's just gross. He doesn't wash. That makes sense. There are also translations that just call him Eyolf the Unwashed. Oof. I enjoy the call-out culture of Icelandic names. Yeah. It's like, you do one thing. It's like, well, there he is. That guy. Yeah, there's a there's one character who's called Thorstein Staffstruck. Because someone once hit him with a staff and he didn't <laughs> uh, demand compensation. And so people just shamed him with that for the rest of his life. <laughs> someone hit you and you didn't do anything about it. That was just his name. Amazing. Amazing. Anyway, Eolfer the Fowl slew the thralls beside Skadesbreaker above Vatsor. In return, Eric slew Eolfer the Fowl. He slew also Hraven the Dueler at Lake Skalar. Gerstein and Odor of Yorfi 
kinsmen of Aeolfer, were found willing to follow up his death by a legal prosecution. And then was Eric outlawed from Haukadalar. He occupied then Broki and Ixni, and dwelt at Thradir in Sudri the first winter. At this time did he lend to Thorgest pillars for seat stocks. Afterward, Eric removed into Uxni and dwelt at Erikstaller. He then claimed his pillars back, and got them not. Then went Eric and fetched the pillars from Breidabelstaller, and Thorgest went after him. They fought at a short distance from the Hayyard at Dranger, and there fell two sons of Thorgest, and some other men. After that... A lot of killing. A yeah, a lot of killing. Uh, another thing that the saga thing folks bring up is that it is unclear whether the name Eric the Red refers to the color of his hair or the blood on his hands. Yeah, that's a good point. That's a very good point. After that, they both kept a large body of men together. Styr, aka Killer Styr, gave assistance to Eric, as did Eolfer of Svini, Thorbjorn Vifilsson, and the sons of Thorbrand of Altafjörder. Note that we've now got people from that first bit coming back in, the Vifilssons. Yes. But the sons of Thor the Bellower, as also Thorgir of Hitterdal, Aslak of Langadal, and Ildugi his son, gave assistance to Thorgest. Eric and his people were outlawed at Thor's Nest Thing. Oh, right. Ooh, okay, you have to explain what a thing is for people who are not familiar, because we're not just talking about, like, oh, they had a thing. Right. Thing is basically Icelandic for parliament. Yes. And they still have it. Mm-hmm. It's still called the thing. I love that. What a great term. Yeah. Or what was it? Like the, the thing moot? Could be, yeah. The thing moot. I think there was, a, there was another specific term for that. Hang on. While Zoe looks that up, how it worked in medieval Iceland was that each region had its own thing, which was like a, a gathering of everyone to settle whatever legal disputes were abroad in that season. And then there was the all thing, which was uh, when people from all parts of Iceland came together to do the same. So the thing moot refers to like the thing mound, the location, the place where you have the thing. The the regional thing at Thorsnes outlaws Eric apparently from the whole island. He prepared a ship in Eriksvager, and Eolfr concealed him in Diminurvager, while Thorgest and his people sought him among the islands. Eric said to his people that he purposed to seek for the land which Gunnbjorn, son of Ulfr the Crow, saw when he was driven westward over the ocean and discovered Gunnbjarnarsker. Greenland is where he's going. Makes sense. That is not what Gunnbjarnarsker means, but... For anyone curious to know what it does mean, scare in this context is cognate with modern English scary, S-K-E-R-R-Y, and shares basically the same meaning. It's a sea rock, usually one that is exposed at low tide and covered during high tide. So, Gunnbjarnarskær just means Gunnbjorn's Rock. It's not a very impressive name. Greenland is a better name, and we will discuss where that came from in a bit. Just to give people some context, we're not to the New World yet. Depending on whether you count Greenland as part of Europe or part of America, or neither. Or both. He promised that he would return to visit his friends if he found the land. Thorbjorn and Eolfer and Styr accompanied Eric beyond the islands. They separated in the most friendly manner, Eric saying that he would be of the like assistance to them if he should be able so to be, and they should happen to need him. Oh, I just really like that it notes that they left each other in a friendly manner, because that is not a guarantee in the sagas. No, and it is almost always noted when uh, groups of people part 
whether or not they part as friends. Yes. Because parting as friends kind of means there's an obligation to help each other out, and parting not as friends means that there might be murders afoot. Yep. The sagas don't hide anything from you. They just build up the anticipation of knowing that something's going to go wrong. And also, one impression you get is that medieval Iceland has a lot in common culturally with the Wild West. Yeah, it does. It really does. Another tangent. We're currently reading Greta Saga in Dr. Hughes' Old Norse uh, translation course. Oh, yeah. I love that saga. And the bit we just did, Grettir comes back from Norway to find that he's been outlawed and his brother has been killed and his mother is in danger of losing her farm. So he has to go fight some people so she can keep it. And I feel like that would fit right into a Western. Oh, completely. Completely. We should just rewrite all the Western movies in Iceland, and we need to take all the sagas and make them Westerns. That'd be great. It's like the samurai movie thing. Like, a lot of the a lot of the samurai movies are based on Westerns and vice versa. Mm-hmm. It's the same thing. We have the same cultural tropes. Anyway, then he sailed oceanwards under Snæfellsjökull and arrived at the glacier called Blåserker. Thence he journeyed south to see if there were any inhabitants of the country. He passed the first winter at Eriksi, which means Eric's Island. I'm sure he named it himself. <laughs> Good on him. <laughs> Near the middle of the western settlement. The following spring, he proceeded to Eriksfjord and fixed his abode there. During the summer, he proceeded into the unpeopled districts in the west and was there a long time, giving names to the places far and wide. The second winter, he passed in Eriksholm, off Varpsknuther. And the third summer he went altogether northwards, to Snæfell and into Hrafnsfjörður. Considering then that he had come to the head of Eriksfjörður, he turned back and passed the third winter in Eriksee, before the mouth of Eriksfjörður. Okay. So he's just exploring everything and everything's named after him. Yes. Now afterwards, during the summer, he proceeded to Iceland and came to Breidafjörður. This winter he was with Ingolf at Holmlatter. During this... Spring, Thorgest and he fought, probably because Eric's not supposed to be in Iceland. Or possibly he got lesser outlawry and the sentence is now over. Like, because three years is, I think, the standard. During the spring, Thorgest and he fought and Eric met with defeat. After that, they were reconciled. Okay. Yeah, very short. That's as as close to a happy ending as we're ever going to get. In the summer, Eric went to live in the land which he had discovered and which he called Greenland. Because, said he... Men will desire much the more to go there if the land has a good name. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's really the reason it's called Greenland, is it's an advertising ploy. That's amazing. Because there was always that joke that the the Vikings were like, oh yeah, we'll call Iceland Iceland, so no one comes here. We'll call Greenland Greenland, and so everyone will go there. But that's like, that's basically what it was. Yeah, and Iceland is called Iceland because one of the early settlers saw ice in the water when he was leaving because he decided he didn't like it there, and the name just stuck. Amazing. For how many centuries? I love it. Uh, yeah, it's coming on 10 centuries. No, 11, 12 centuries? A long time. A long time. Thorgir Vifelsen married, so we're back to those guys from the first bit, and took to wife Arnora, daughter of Einar from Laugerbrekka, the son of Sigmund, the son of Kettle Thistle, who had occupied Thistlesphere there. The second daughter of Einar was named Halveig. Thorbjorn Vifelsen took her to wife and received with her the land of Laugerbrekka at Hetlisvolder. To that spot, Thorbjorn moved his abode and became great and worshipful. He was the temple priest and had a magnificent estate. Thorbjorn's daughter was Gudrider, the fairest of women and of peerless nobility in all of her conduct. There was a man named Ormur, who dwelt at Arnarstapi, 
and he had a wife who was named Haldis. He was a well-to-do Franklin, or wealthy farmer, a great mm-hmm. friend of Thorbjorn, and Guthrider lived at his house as his foster child for a long time. There was a man called Thorgir, who dwelt at Thorgir's fjall. He was mighty rich in cattle, and had been made a freedman. He had a son whose name was Einar, a handsome man, well-mannered, and a great dandy. Einar, at this time, was a traveling merchant, sailing from land to land with great success, and he always passed his winter either in Iceland or Norway. Now, after this, I have to tell how that one autumn, when Einar was in Iceland, he proceeded with his wares along Snifelsnes with the object of selling. He came to Arnarstapi. Ormur invited him to stay there, and Einar accepted his invitation, because there was friendship between him and Ormur's people, and his wares were taken into a certain outbuilding. There he unpacked his merchandise, showed it to Ormur and the houseman, and bade Ormur take therefrom such things as he would. Ormur accepted the offer, and pronounced Einar to be a goodly gallant traveler, and a great favorite of fortune. When now they were busy with the wares, a woman passed before the door of the outbuilding. Einar inquired of Ortimer who that fair woman might be passing before the door. I have not seen her here before, said he. That is Gudrider, my foster daughter, said Orm, daughter of Thorbjorn the Franklin, from Laugabreka. She must be a good match, said Einar. Surely she has not been without suitors who have made proposals for her, has she? Ortimer answered, Proposals have certainly been made, friend, but this treasure is not to be had for the picking up. It is found that she will be particular in her choice, as well as also her father. Ooh, 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 okay. And for this whole next exchange, I want you to keep in mind that the only interaction between Einar and Guthrider at this point is that she walked by a doorway and he saw her. Oh, boy. For like right. a fraction of a second. Okay, I'll keep that in mind. And see, I feel like we should also mention that hospitality culture is huge here. So this is like if you're a friend of somebody else and you show up on that friend's doorstep, they have to let you in. They have to house you. That is the custom there. And it is not uncommon to to have this kind of courtship go on mm-hmm. because you do want to find a suitable match. But the fact that she's being very picky is also very common in these sagas as well. So I'm interested to see how this goes, because if it's a saga, it probably doesn't go well. And I'm excited to see how it plays out. Well, in spite of that, with Einar, uh, in spite of her being picky, she is the woman whom I have it in my mind to propose for. And I wish that in this suit of mine, you approach her father on my part and apply yourself to plead diligently for me, for which I shall pay you in return a perfect friendship. The Franklin Thorbjorn, I don't know why it's translated as Franklin, because that's an English term. Like because medieval it's England. Somebody from I know, but it's somebody Victorian who's translating this. The Franklin Thorbjorn may reflect that our families would be suitably joined in the bonds of affinity, for he is a man in a position of great honor and owns a fine abode, but his personal property, I am told, is greatly on the decrease. Either I nor my father lack lands or personal property, and if this alliance should be brought about, the greatest assistance would accrue to Thorbjorn. So basically saying, I'm gonna marry this woman. You've gotta help me. And you tell her father that I know that he's old rich but running out of money, and I'm new rich and getting more money, so it's a good deal. Ah. And to this, I would add that for those of you who are interested in this idea of trading honor and wealth and sort of glory, there's a fantastic article by Peter Baker called Loot and the Economy of Honor. 
and I highly recommend it. It focuses more on Beowulf, but the same principles apply in the Icelandic culture as well. Because honor is a tra- honor and friendship, especially in this saga, is a tradable commodity. Yeah, fact. And I do recommend reading more about that. And also listening to Saga Thing, where they talk about this much more. Yeah. Then answered Ormer, Of a surety I consider myself to be thy friend, and yet I am not willing to bring forward this suit, for Thorbjorn is of a proud mind, and a very ambitious man. Einar replied that he desired no other thing than that his offer of marriage should be made known. Ormer then consented to undertake his suit, and Einar journeyed south again until he came home. Einar is basically leveraging this friendship to strong-arm Ormer into proposing to Guthrieder's father for him Mm -hmm. in Ormer's capacity as her foster father. Again, uh, in medieval culture, fosterage was like, you just sent your kids to be raised by someone else for a little while, and they'd get a broader experience of the world, and they'd expand their family bonds. Mm -hmm. Unlike today, where if you have foster parents, it probably means that that something happened to your regular parents. Mm Mm-hmm. Or your birth parents, rather. Right. And again, this is all based on he saw her walk by a doorway. So she must be... Love at first sight. Really hot. <laughs> Imagine if you'd seen Thorbjorn Chipbreast. Hoo-hoo. I bet she got all the dudes. Something about milkshakes in the yard. Although it might be difficult to see her through a doorway because she might not fit in the frame. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, you need to have a you need to have a a broad door to get the ship inside. <laughs> a while after, Thorbjorn had a harvest feast, as he was bound to have because of his great rank. There were present Ormer from Arnastapi and many other friends of Thorbjorn. Ormer entered into conversation with Thorbjorn and told him how that Einar had lately been to see him from Thorgeirsfjall and was become a promising man. He now began the wooing on behalf of Einar. I want to mention that the idea of somebody making a proposal on your behalf is a foreign concept to us, but not so odd in cultures of arranged marriages or in sort of medieval culture or high medieval culture uh, by any regard. You would you would want to have good political alliances, or even if you just have two uh, families of the same standing who are maybe from different areas, somebody would, would put the marriage together. And like, we see this in... Um, Pride and Prejudice. Like you want to have a good match. So this is a a very traditional way of arranging a marriage. So it seems really weird because he saw this girl and he's like, yeah, now you go propose on my behalf. But this is a very common way of doing this. Right. It is also a recurring thing in the sagas that in order to make a marriage, you have to negotiate with both the woman and her family. Mm-hmm. If you get only the woman's approval, but not her family's approval, there's something going to go wrong and, and vice versa because we see both mm-hmm. and it, it tends to go badly. Yeah. Like absolutely. she has to be on board with it. And also her family has to agree, not legally, but just like it doesn't work out well if you don't do that. Yeah. And women in sort of Viking, Icelandic, Scandinavian medieval culture had more rights than you might see in later high medieval culture. And I also think that's, it, that's very important to, recognize uh, because a lot of times you think of the medieval woman sort of being stuck at home, working the farm, whatever. But in Viking culture, they actually had more rights than, say, in French medieval culture at the same time. Yeah. Well, I think a lot of it is just because we're not talking noble women. Yeah. Yeah. True. 
He now began the wooing on behalf of Einar and said that an alliance between the families would be very suitable on account of certain interests. There may arise to thee, Franklin, great assistance in thy means from this alliance. Money. Yeah. But Thorbjorn answered, I did not expect the like proposal from thee, that I should give my daughter in marriage to the son of a thrall. Because, remember, even though Einar is both free and prosperous, it does matter who your family is, and his family mm -hmm. were servants, or mm -hmm. thralls, or mm -hmm. whatever that means. Right. And so thou perceivest that my substance is decreasing. Well, then my daughter shall not go home with thee, since thou considerest her worthy of so poor a match. So, in case the deliberately archaic speech that the translator has chosen confuse anyone, basically Thorbjorn is so offended by this that he cuts off the fosterage relationship. Not good. No, very bad. Then went Ortimer home again, and each of the other guests to his own household. And Guthrither remained with her father and stayed at home that winter. Now in the spring, Thorbjorn made a feast to his friends, and a goodly banquet was prepared. There came many guests, and the banquet was of the best. Now at the banquet, Thorbjorn called for a hearing, and thus spake, Here have I dwelt a long time. I have experienced the goodwill of men and their affection towards me, and I consider that our dealings with one another have been mutually agreeable. But now do my money matters begin to bring me uneasiness, although to this time my condition has not been reckoned contemptible. I wish, therefore, to break up my household before I lose my honor, to remove from the country before I disgrace my family. So now I purpose to look after the promises of Eric the Red, my friend, which he made when we separated at Breithafjörður. I purpose to depart for Greenland in the summer, if events proceed as I could wish. These tidings about this design appeared to the guests to be important, for Thorbjorn had long been beloved by his friends. They felt that he would only have made so public a declaration that it might be held of no avail to attempt to dissuade him from his purpose. Thorbjorn distributed gifts among the guests, and then the feast was brought to an end, and they departed to their own homesteads. Uh, basically, Thorbjorn really does have money problems, so he probably shouldn't have turned down that marriage. So instead, he's liquidating all his assets and moving to Greenland to start over. Move to a new country, start your life. It's called Greenland. Must be nice. Yeah, obviously. Thorbjorn sold his lands and bought a ship which had been laid up on shore at the mouth of the Hraunholf. Thirty men ventured on the expedition with him. There was Orner from Arnestafi and his wife and those friends of Thorbjorn who did not wish to be separated from him. Then they launched the ship and set sail with a favorable wind. But when they came out into the open sea, the favorable wind ceased, and they experienced great gales, and made but an ill-sped voyage throughout the summer. In addition to that trouble, there came fever upon the expedition, and Ortimer died, and Haldis, his wife, and half the company. Ooh. So, so this is not a new thing for transatlantic travel. Yeah. There is a long history of getting sick, getting ill, dying on transatlantic travel. It's a long way to go, especially in a like a seafaring vessel that's that small. Yeah, and that's something that comes up a lot in this story is the hazards of these long ocean voyages. Because like most of the trips you see Vikings making are, I say Vikings, Viking is a profession, uh, Norsemen, most of the trips you see Norsemen <laughs> making are from Scandinavia to Iceland to the British Isles or along the rivers of continental Europe. Mm-hmm. Going out into the open ocean is a whole other thing. Yeah, seafaring voyages is a is a huge thing. And fun fact, that is actually like the 
opening premise of the Vikings TV series is like the very first season is like, okay, there's land uh, over the ocean. And they're speaking of Iceland at this point, I think the sort of the idea is we should go that direction. And everybody's like, no, 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 there's nothing there. And uh, the chief character, Ragnar Lothbrok is like, no, 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 there is, I need a good seafaring vessel. So that's interesting. Also, fun fact about the ocean. The oceans have squid. different... Yeah, yes, the oceans have squid. <laughs> they also have dead zones because they all have currents, right? So uh, the reason that Ireland is so relatively warm and wet as compared to like Newfoundland and Canada on the same... Is it longitude? Latitude latitude on the same latitude on all level is because of these ocean currents so we get we get the the streams the gulf stream is the one you're thinking of yes but there are these so there are these big currents there's also these big dead zones so if you sail into one of the dead zones there you you can go weeks without wind and no way to cross the doldrums as they're called yeah so i'm wondering if Maybe they didn't get caught in a dead zone because they're talking about these big gales, but I'm wondering which currents they encountered. I think it'd be interesting to try and map that out. I think, and see, this is where I get really excited about mixing the sciences and the humanities. I would love to see an interdisciplinary study about, okay, which routes did they take? How did we develop these routes? Did they figure out these routes to get over to Iceland and the new the new world, quote unquote. Did they figure these out during this period? Was it later? I would love to see that sort of research go on. But anyway, that's another tangent. There have been some efforts to map out these routes, but I don't know how extensive they are. So maybe this is a paper you can work on at some point. Yeah. Oh, and while we're having a digression let's do remind everyone that this is during the early part of the medieval warm period mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so everything we say about greenland remember that greenland is warmer then than it was for most of history mm-hmm. having only become warmer in recent years for completely different reasons not related to the natural rise and fall of climates anyway for a few hundred years northern europe was warmer than usual yep And so Greenland is at its most hospitable to continental European lifestyles as opposed to indigenous lifestyles at this point, which is why they can have settlements there. So just keep that in mind when we talk about what living in Greenland is like at this time. This is as good as it gets. Yes. Then the sea waxed rougher, and they endured much toil and misery in many ways, and only reached Herjolsnes in Greenland at the very beginning of winter. There dwelt at Herjolsnes the man who was called Thorkept. He was a useful man and most worthy Franklin. He received Thorbjorn and all his ship's company for the winter, assisting them in right noble fashion. This pleased Thorbjorn well and his companions in the voyage. At that time, there was a great famine in Greenland. Those who, have, who had been out on fishing expeditions had caught little, and some had not returned. There was in the settlement a woman whose name was Thorbjorn. She was a prophetess and was called Little Rulva. Ooh. People might be familiar with uh, the Norns. Yes. This is related to that. Vulva, V-O with umlauts, L-V-A, means uh, uh, cirrus. Okay. Gotcha. I've always heard it pronounced, probably Anglicanized as heck, uh, vulva. So if, you, if you've seen it spelled, it looks closer to vulva, V-O-L-V-A. Honestly, your pronunciation might be better. 
I don't know. Icelandic is so interesting because it is the closest modern language we have to Old English, but whereas Old English does not differentiate in pronunciation between the F and the thorn, Icelandic does, which I think is super interesting. All right, so it's supposed to sound like I. Vilva. Vilva. Okay. Not to be confused with genitalia. Yes. (laughs) A very different thing. But anyway, she is little vulva, which means little seeress. So, like, she's not like the mythological ones, like the one who uh, delivers the voluspa in the Edda. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. She's just a mortal person. She had had nine sisters, and they were all prophetesses, and she was the only one still living. It was a custom of Thorbjörg in the wintertime to make a circuit, and people invited her to their houses, especially those who had any curiosity about the season or desired to know their fate. And inasmuch as Thorka, I'm going to keep saying this wrong because the double L in Icelandic is supposed to be pronounced like the consonant at the end of Nahuatl. Unrelated languages. That's just the best reference I have. No, I just don't even know what the second word was. It's a language from Mesoamerica. Oh, oh, okay, 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 okay. But the the double L is supposed to be pronounced like an L and a T at the same time. So what's his name? I I keep saying Thorkel, but it's supposed to be Thorkeps. Yeah, Thorkeps. This is a hard word for my tongue to try and get right. It's uh, it's a hard sound in general. I can only do it (laughs) because I've been having Dr. Hughes drill it into me for the past year. Oh my gosh, he was so particular about that. Still is. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, that guy was Chief Franklin thereabouts, and he considered that it concerned him to know when the famine which overhung the settlement should cease. He invited, therefore, the prophetess to his house, and prepared for her a hearty welcome, as was the custom wherever a reception was accorded a woman of this kind. A high seat was prepared for her, and a cushion laid thereon in which were poultry feathers. The next couple paragraphs are a lot about the reception of this prophetess, and there is a lack of agreement on what these details mean. The Saga thing guys describe her as being a diva, because they assume that these are just like the luxuries she demands in order to come visit. But there's also the possibility that these are the specific uh, items that have to be involved as part of a ritual. Because she is like, I mean, she's basically a priestess. Yeah. more so because she's a prophetess. She's Well, she's a prophetess. And so you have on top of... And she's also a guest. And so you do have the ritual of hospitality, which also plays a big part. So you do... Like, if if you're having... I mean, it'd be not the Pope necessarily, but like if you had, you know, a foreign dignitary or, or another religious figure of someone in your faith that you respected, you would want to kind of roll out the red carpet. Yeah. And this... As far as I know, is I think she may be one of the highest ranking pagan religious figures we see in the sagas. Yeah. Because like I there's not so. really a firm hierarchy, but she is I mean, she's a prophetess. Anyway, now, when she came in the evening, accompanied by the man who had been sent to meet her, she was dressed in such wise that she had a blue mantle over her, with strings for the neck, and it was inlaid with gems quite down to the skirt. On her neck she had glass beads, on her head she had a black hood of lambskin lined with ermine, a staff she had in her hand with a knob thereon. To quote Terry Pratchett, a wizard's staff has a knob on the end. <laughs> that, can, that can go in our uh, echoes of modern culture. <laughs> it was ornamented with brass and inlaid with gems round about the knob. Around her she wore a girdle of soft hair, and therein was a large skin bag, 
in which she kept the talismans needful to her and her wisdom. I'm assuming that this is actually a leather bag, and the translator just decided that skin bag sounded more exotic. I was going... I was confused about the uh, girdle of hair. I mean, you can just braid hair together. A girdle's just like a fancy belt. True, but what's... Is it like horse hair? I would guess horse hair, but it might not be. It might be human hair. I was like... Hmm... It has to be something that has long hair. Choose your interpretation, I suppose. Huh. Were horses that prevalent at this time? How late is this saga? This saga? I do not know. It's set in the 11th century, but all the sagas are written in like the 13th and 14th centuries. Right, right. I don't know if I'd try and... Like, I certainly wouldn't lug a horse all the way to, to Greenland, but if it's just like a horsehair girdle, then that would... That makes sense. I don't think this is, what do you call, this is not locally produced material. The Greenland settlement right. was basically just, they exported walrus ivory and imported everything yeah. else. It's a little colony. I'm going to see if I can find the original word that's used to describe what this girdle is made of and see if that helps. All right, yeah. Future Mac might come back with that. Okay, no worries. Future Mac here. I've spent the last half hour looking into this, and I think I know less than when I started. If you know, please tell me. Otherwise, I don't have the time to keep trying to figure this out unless I'm turning it into something to publish. She wore hairy calfskin shoes on her feet, with long and strong-looking thongs to them. That probably makes sense to any Australian listeners we might have, mm -hmm. but for American mm -hmm. listeners, bits of leather. The, the, the ties, yeah, it's like the strings. A, like a flip-flop, yeah. Yeah, in Australia, thong means flip-flop, which is closer than... But we're, we're talking leather strings here that hold her shoes yeah. together. Yeah. And great knobs of Latin at the ends. No idea. I did find this one. It's metal. It's an alloy. Other versions of the text just say tin, which is different. Future Mac might end up having a lot to say about this CRS. Okay. On her hands she had gloves of ermine skin, and they were white and hairy within. The gloves, I assume, not her hands. That would make sense. Now when she entered, all men thought it their bound duty to offer her becoming greetings, and these she received according as the men were agreeable to her. The Franklin Thorkept took the wise woman by the hand, and led her to the seat prepared for her. He requested her to cast her eyes over his herd, his household, and his homestead. She remained silent altogether. During the evening the tables were set, and now I must tell you what food was made ready for the prophetess. There was prepared for her porridge of kid's milk, and hearts of all kinds of living creatures there found were cooked for her. Oh, wow. Yeah. She had a brazen spoon and a knife with a handle of walrus tusk, which was mounted with two rings of brass, and the point of it was broken off. Hmm. Interesting note. I don't know if intentional or not. <laughs> when the tables were removed, the Franklin Thorkeps advanced to Thorbjorg and asked her how she liked his household, or the appearance of the men, or how soon she would ascertain that which he had asked, and which the men desired to know. She replied that she would not give answer before the morning, after she had slept there for the night. And when the next day was far spent, the preparations were made for her which she required for the exercise of her enchantments. She begged them to bring to her those women who were acquainted with the lore needed for the exercise of the enchantments, and which is known by the name of Weird Songs. 
That's weird meaning fate, not weird meaning strange. Oh, okay. Makes sense. It's also hyphenated. Weird songs. Weird songs. That sounds like a great album cover. Yeah, I'd listen to that. But no such women came forward. Then was search made throughout the homestead if any women were so learned. Then answered Gudrider, I am not skilled in deep learning, nor am I a wise woman. Although Haldis, my foster mother, taught me in Iceland the lore which she called weird songs. Then art thou wise in good season, answered Thorbjörg. But Gudrider replied, That lore and the ceremony are of such a kind that I purpose to be of no assistance therein, because I am a Christian woman. <laughs> Makes sense. So this is very interesting. We have the back and forth of interreligion here, which appears to be perfectly peaceful. Yeah. Although, I mean, there's some friction, but there, at no point does it turn into like a holy war. Yeah. Yeah. I always like seeing that because the so the sagas that we do have are always written from a Christian perspective. And I guess it's more in my area of speciality that I have to deal with, okay, how do we interpret all of these texts when they're all written from a Christian perspective? How do we really see uh, the pagan stuff? Can we really trust that what's been written is what the actual pagan ritual look like. We don't really have a lot of pagan rituals written down. Mm -hmm. They've all been interpreted through this Christian lens. So it's really interesting to me to see the coexistence of both pagan and Christian ritual together, because that's not very often seen. No. Well, it's hard to, because it's <laughs> almost fundamental of a monotheistic religion that if you believe in any monotheistic faith, that means that anyone worshipping something else is either wrong or a devil worshipper. Yeah. yeah. But if you're a polytheist, then you can just say, like, oh, oh sure, they're worshipping other gods. It's fine. But right. monotheistic faiths are kind of incompatible with everything else by virtue yeah. of what they are. Exactly. Then answered Thorbjorg, Thou mightest perchance afford thy help to the men in this company, and yet be none the worse woman than thou wast before. But to Thorkett give I charge to provide here the things that are needed. Thorkett thereupon urged Gudrider to consent, and she yielded to his wishes. The women formed a ring round about, and Thorbjorg ascended the scaffold and the seat prepared for her enchantments. Then sang Gudrider the weird song in so beautiful and excellent a manner, that to no one there did it seem that he had ever before heard the song in voice so beautiful as now. The prophetess thanked her for the song. Many spirits, said she, have been present under its charm, and were pleased to listen to the song, who before would turn away from us and grant us no such homage. Oh, wow. Yeah, and this is one of the things I kind of like about the saga, is that they're very firm that, like, Christianity is definitely the right way to go, as far as the authors of the saga are concerned. But mm -hmm. all the pagan rituals seem to still work. Oh, yeah. They're just wrong. Yeah. Yeah. That, this is the really interesting thing that here, I'm getting so excited because it's magic and this is what I do. Uh, <laughs> what's really interesting to me is that from a modern perspective, even people of faith, like Christians will say like, oh, yeah, God's up there. But also like magic doesn't exist. It's not a real thing. Like miracles, sure. But you know, we don't have common ritual practices that we do. Like we would look at, for instance, what's in the leech book and we'd be like, yeah, that seems like a magic spell. And that's not really, that's not really going to actually going to work. But from the medieval perspective, largely you do live in a very supernatural world. So it's not that, oh yeah, God is the one true God. And we have the Christian faith and everything else is just fake. It's rather that 
okay, we've got the correct way, which is God, and then we have everything else, which actually is still a thing. It's just demonic or it's pagan or it's dangerous in some other form. It's still potent. It's still actual magic. Elves are still there. Giants still exist. They're just dangerous and you don't want to go near them. This is just reminding me of wild connection, probably, that only makes sense to me. (laughs) But I'm thinking of that Star Trek episode where Dr. Crusher has an epiphany and goes, I'm fine. It's the universe that's wrong. Oh, wow. Oh, boy. (laughs) So I'm just because like, that's exactly what it sounded like you were describing. Like, no, look, what we're doing is fine and normal and good. It's just that the rest of the world is wrong. Is doing the wrong thing. And there are things out there that are that exist but shouldn't because they're wrong. So yeah. we have to yeah. fix it. For the curious, Past Mac is thinking of Season 4, Episode 5 of The Next Generation entitled Remember Me. And the line he is misquoting is, If there's nothing wrong with me, maybe there's something wrong with the universe. Another science fiction analogy that he could have pulled out, which is actually what I, Future Mac, was expecting to hear while editing this, is Daleks. For those of you who are unfamiliar, Daleks are antagonists from the show Doctor Who. They're these alien cyborg things that kind of glide along the ground. And because of this method of locomotion, for a long time there was a joke that you could defeat these fearsome antagonists just by going up the stairs, because it didn't look like they could handle that. Turns out they levitate, so the, the joke doesn't work anymore. But I once read a discussion about why Daleks, who claim to be a perfected species, they're space Nazis, of course, why they wouldn't fix their cyborg chassis to be able to handle stairs. And the response was, obviously, if you start from the assumption that we the Daleks are perfect, and then you encounter something that you can't do, like go upstairs, then the conclusion is not, there's something wrong with our design. The conclusion is, stairs are wrong. And that seems to be the same thing as uh, what we're talking about here with elves and early Christianity. If you assume that you have all the answers and your way is the right way because monotheistic religion, it kind of has to be like that, but you also accept that elves exist, then you can't say maybe there's something missing in our understanding of how the universe works. You have to say, okay, elves exist, but elves are wrong. That was too long of a future Mac tangent. I apologize. Back to the episode. That was the idea, especially as you get into like the high middle ages. It's it's let's stamp out witchcraft. We're going to have witch trials. And then only after the enlightenment in the late 1700s going into the 1800s, do you have English law saying, okay, yeah, sorcery and witchcraft isn't actually a thing. Before that, it totally was 100%. But it's so witchcraft wasn't quote unquote debunked until particularly late in the world's history, I would say. And in a lot of places, it's still, you know, it has a very, very 
common presence. Yeah, I was going to say, there are certain rural evangelical groups uh, in America oh, who yeah. are pretty sure witchcraft is still real. Yeah. And there are also some ostensibly Christian practices in evangelical communities that are basically witchcraft with the cross attached. Yeah, and that's the interesting thing, is like, how, how do you define magic? What is What is the difference between, you know, the Eucharist and you know, a magic, a magic spell. And that's, that's something that's very interesting that I'm studying at present. And, you know, there's also rites of like, for instance, voodoo magic, or I just read about some witch trials that are going on in Papua New Guinea. And that's still an active thing. Like witches mm-hmm. are still being burnt. Did they burn them in Papua New Guinea? Yep. There's, yeah, there's, there's still a couple places around the world uh, where witches are still, or people who are accused of being witches, both male and female, young and old, are still actively being killed. Yeah, I was going to say, I was, I was pretty sure in the Pacific Islanders, witches were more often male than female. It's a completely different tradition. Yeah, yeah. But anyway... <laughs> yeah. Back to back to this prophetess who is being appreciated rather than, you know, attacked. Right, yeah. All right, so the prophetess is speaking. She's happy there are spirits. She thanks Gudrunidur for the weird song. And now are many things clear to me, which before were hidden both from me and others. And I am able this to say, that the famine will last no longer, the season improving as spring advances. The epidemic of fever which has long oppressed us will disappear quicker than we could have hoped. And the... Gudrither, will I recompense straight away for that aid of thine which has stood us in good stead, because thy destiny is now clear to me and foreseen. Thou shalt make a match here in Greenland, a most honorable one, though it will not be a long-lived one for thee, because thy way lies out to Iceland, and there shall arise from thee a line of descendants both numerous and goodly, and over the branches of thy family shall shine a bright bray. And so fare thee now well and happily, my daughter. Ooh. So we've got like a prophecy going on here. Afterwards, the men went to the wise woman and each inquired after what he was most curious to know. She was also liberal of her replies and what she said proved true. After this, came one from another homestead after her. And she then went there. Thorbjorn was invited because he did not wish to remain at home while such heathen worship was performing. (laughs) The weather soon improved when once spring began, as Thorbjorn had said. Thorbjorn made ready his ship, and went on until he came to Bratafi. Eric received him with the utmost cordiality, saying he had done well to come there. Thorbjorn and his family were with him during the winter. And the following spring, Eric gave to Thorbjorn land at Stockness, and handsome farm buildings were there built for him, and he dwelt there afterwards. That's the end of... This, this is split up into very short chapters. That is the end of chapter four. And in chapter five, we actually meet Leaf the Lucky. Okay. Boom. Oh, so that's a really great stopping point. Also, just about halfway through. Perfect. So this is our preface. I guess this is our, our prefacing Thanksgiving episode. So should I guess we'll save all of our ratings. Yes. Well, since we're not doing our final bits in this section, then I will just say happy Thanksgiving to everyone if you choose to celebrate Thanksgiving. And even if you don't choose to celebrate Thanksgiving, you know, just as a good daily ritual, this is something that my mom has been getting me to do and it's actually been really helpful. Just name something you're grateful for. Just three things that you're grateful for. And here we go. Yeah. All right. So in the spirit of the season, I am grateful for you and I am grateful for the podcast that we've built up. 
And I am also grateful for our listeners who support us. And yeah. Thank you for listening to The Maniculum. For more geeky editions, or to see our sources and notes, check out our blog, Marginalia, at themaniculumpodcast.com. You can also join our Facebook group, The Maniculum Podcast, to join in on discussions about all things medieval. And feel free to reach out. We're on Twitter, at Maniculum, and on Instagram, at Maniculum Podcast. We'd love to hear from you. And special thanks to Sandra Boyle, who created the music for our show. Check out her project, Sugar Glass, on Spotify. Stand by. I am also reheating my coffee. Okay. Just give me a second. In the meantime, I am trying to create... uh, I'm trying trying to make cheese... Which I'm excited about. <laughs> Good luck. Thank you. I don't know how it's going, so I'm just I'm I'm trying to separate the curds in the way, and so I just have this big bowl of potentially curdling kefir, which it's supposed to curdle. But make sure to hang on to the way. The sagas also teach us that fermented whey makes a great drink when you're fishing, and you can hide in it to avoid a burning house. That is true.